Have you ever wondered how Christianity grew from just a small group of men and women gathered in Jerusalem after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to what it is today? Literally, the largest religion in the world, and it's on pretty much every continent and moving its way through every people group in the world. Have you ever wondered how it grew from something so small to something so big? Certainly, it's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, we would just first and foremost say God's plans never fail. God has been building His church from day one, and His Holy Spirit is on the move, winning people to faith in Jesus Christ. You want to know one of the ways the Holy Spirit has worked through, though? It's been through the world that is non-believing, looking in on the lives of believers and seeing their ethic, seeing the way they live their life and the way they relate to each other and the way they love other people and the way they sacrifice of their life and the way they respond to those who hate them. See, when the world looks in on that and sees Christians living that way, something just drastic happens in the human heart. There's a famous epistle, a letter that was written, and it was written early on in the first few centuries after Christ, in the mid-hundreds, uh, around 150 AD. And it's called the Epistle to Ignatius, And it's a guy writing to someone else explaining his view of Christianity. And now, this is an incredible letter. You should read the whole thing. And I'm just taking a small section of it here. But I want you to hear specifically how he says Christians treated those who disrespected them or hated them. He says they obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. This is a description of Christians. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They're unknown and condemned. They're put to death, and they're restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet in their very dishonoring, they're glorified. They are evilly spoken of, and yet they're justified. They're reviled, and then they bless. They're insulted, and they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet they're punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened unto life. They're assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They're persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are, are, are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. This is an outsider describing what they see about Christian life. That's how Christianity changed the world. It was Christians' lives. They walked the walk. They literally had enemies who were putting them to death, who were crucifying them, who were putting them on stakes, who were robbing them. They had enemies who hated them from every angle. And yet, they loved, they blessed, they persecuted, or they, they, they prayed for others, and their life gave testament to the power of Jesus Christ. It's this Christian ethic that's so powerful. This is not a description of some supergroup of Christians back who lived in 100 AD. This is not just for some other group of Christians somewhere else. This is the command for everyone who chooses to follow Jesus. This is how you live. You want to sign up to be a Christian? Here's the ethic. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And we're called to love and pray for our enemies. You know, their orthopraxy, that's how you live your life. Your orthopraxy is how you live your life. It matched their orthodoxy. That's what they said they believed. In our modern day, one of our big problems is that our orthopraxy, what we do with our life, is out of sync with what we say about who Jesus is. And so the world looks in and they see all these 
things that we say is true about Jesus, all these claims we claim about his love and his sacrifice for us, and then they look at our life and they go, well, I don't see much of that in their life. We've got a strong orthodoxy and very little orthopraxy, and we're walking around as lopsided Christians wondering why the world isn't taking notice of our love. See, the early Christians got this right. You can't be lopsided. Church, we've got to wake up. Right now is the moment. I don't know if you noticed, the world is looking for hope right now. And we've got to wake up. We are the church. We have hope incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a hope unlike any other opportunity or idol or hope that is claimed somewhere else in the world. Jesus heals. He is peace. He is love. He is the one that bridges the gap of every injustice. He is the one that steps into brokenness. And we must reclaim, Christians, listen, we must reclaim both our orthodoxy, what we say we believe, matched by an orthopraxy of how we live our lives in the eyes of a watching world. Secular culture needs to witness, once again, the radical display of Christians putting on display with their life sacrificial agape love like Christ. That's what they're looking for and they're waiting for a Christian to show it to them. So what does this look like? Well, we've got to go to Jesus himself, and we go right to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we're continuing through the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to understand, after the Beatitudes, we get to this section where Christ, in verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5, he has this section where he says that he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And what that means is he's looking back at the Old Testament, and he's saying that whole Old Testament law, I'm not getting rid of that thing. I'm not... I'm not saying that was wrong. I'm fulfilling it. I'm showing you what it was all about in the first place. And then in the, in the sections that follow, he goes over six different ideas of how, how that applies to what he's teaching. He talks about anger and how if you look at a brother with anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. He talks about lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths. And then he gets to these two last sections we're going to deal with today. And notice, what I'm saying is it's flowing out of the heart of the law. This is not a new ethic Jesus is teaching. It's the same God with the same ethic all the way through the Old Testament now applying to us. So two doctrines for us today that I think will change the world if we start living this way. Doctrine number one is the doctrine of Christian non-retaliation. Christian non-retaliation. Let's read this first section, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's work through that text a little bit. Jesus begins, you've heard that it was said. In other words, he's going back to what the Pharisees and what the religious leaders are saying, what the Bible actually teaches. He said, you've heard it was taught this. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that was a common saying that was going around in that day, and you can trace it back to an Old Testament law. But what, what Jesus is saying is that the religious leaders were misrepresenting what that was all about in the first place. They were mischaracterizing it. And Jesus is now setting the record straight, saying, you want to talk about that verse and how you're applying it? Let me tell you what it originally meant. 
Now, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth comes up a handful of times in the Old Testament. One of them is in Exodus chapter 21, 22 to 25. Let me read it to you so that you can get a sense for where this came from in the Old Testament law. Old Testament law, Moses writes this, When men strive together, so when men get in a fight, and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, that's to the child that was in the womb, if there is harm, then you shall pay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, quick side note before we go further. That's an Old Testament passage that affirms the dignity of the life in the womb. If you hurt a pregnant woman and you destroy the life that was in the womb, it's actually a, a crime in the Old Testament punishable by capital death capital punishment. It's, your life is taken because you took a human life in the Old Testament. Now, back to the point that he's making here. This was a law that was designed for judges. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the way that Old Testament judges, those who were in charge of government, were to settle disputes and arguments. That was for the civic duties, to actually say, how do we solve these problems when men strive together and there's faults? Well, you go before a judge, and here's the rules, judge. This is how you are to mete out punishment. What had happened in the Old Testament, what God had done, is he had given government, and this is still the case. God, Romans chapter 13 says, God has given government to be his deacon, his servant, to hand out his wrath, his justice, towards the one who does evil. So we're looking at a verse in the Old Testament that says, okay, here's how you do that, judges. What happened is that the individuals had applied it to themselves. And rather than allowing judges and courts and government to solve disputes, now God's people had assumed the role of judge and jury and were meeting out an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, on their own. They were taking vengeance upon themselves. Our duty to individuals who wrong us is not retaliation. But actually, even from the Old Testament, it's the acceptance of, of injustice without seeking revenge. Listen from Proverbs 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. See, this is how God's people are to behave when it comes to personal ethics. And then Jesus gave three great examples. And they're just very practical examples. He could have picked any number of examples. The first one was turn the cheek. He says, I, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek. We don't quite understand this in our modern day, but a slap on the cheek, it wasn't like a punch in the gut. This wasn't like a physical fight. A slap on the cheek was a public display of uh, making little of you. It was an attempt to take your dignity away. Jesus says, let's say you're in a public setting. So, someone does something to you that's trying to make you demeaned, to make you feel little or inferior. Don't feel like you've got to defend yourself. Turn the other cheek. Jesus' second example, if someone sues you, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. <laughs> this is crazy. So hear the instruction from Jesus. You ready for this, Christian? If someone sues you unjustly, let him get away with it. Let him take your cloak as well. Oh, I don't know if we like that teaching from Jesus, do we? Take the loss. It would better to just be take the loss than to go try to fight back and win. If someone forces you to go one mile, 
go with him two miles. Now, this was a crazy, absurd law that was in the Roman days where a Roman military official could actually kind of take someone who's walking down the street and say, hey, carry my pack for me for a mile. What an absurd law that was. Just crazy. Jesus says, if that happens to you, if you're on your day and you're going about your business and you've got all this stuff to do and a Roman government official comes to you and says, hey, you're mine. I need you to carry my pack for me for a mile. Don't fight. Don't argue. Do it for him for two miles. You show him how much you want to care for that person. Who does this? Do you know anybody? Can you, can you think of anybody you know or any circumstance you can think of in your regular everyday life? Think of all the Christians you know. Have you seen anybody do this? Why not? Jesus told us that's how we're supposed to live. Why isn't the world taking notice of us, church? Maybe it's because we're not living out the, the things Jesus told us to do. One of the reasons non-retaliation is so difficult, this, this is really the heart of it, one of the reasons the doctrine of Christian non-retaliation is so difficult is because we feel like if we don't take revenge, if we don't bulk up, lawyer up, take care of the situation, then we're just going to let that bad guy get away with it. We're going to let injustice continue. We're going to let the murderer get away with murder. And we feel like we've got to do something about this. We don't want them to get away with it. We need to show them who God is, that he is a God of justice, so we need to take personal revenge on the person. <laughs> and here's the deal. No one gets away with anything in God's kingdom. Vengeance is the Lord's. See, when we have a, a right vision of the world, when we actually understand how all things are going to work out in the long run, we have a right vision. What we understand is that nobody gets away with evil. Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with everybody. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Romans chapter 12. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. See, Christian, retali Christian non-retaliation just simply says, it's not my job to get revenge on somebody. That's the Lord's. He'll bring wrath to every injustice. And every wrong that's been done to you personally, he'll take care of it. Either in this life or in the next life, he's going to take care of it. It's not your job to try to take care of it yourself. Now I want to speak for a moment to a very important sidebar. And that's the topic of abuse. I want to make sure you hear what I'm not saying. This is not an excuse for someone who is an abuser to just continue abusing someone and for that person to just stay in that relationship and feel like their job as a Christian is just to roll over and keep taking abuse. That's not what this is saying. If you're in an abusive relationship or an abusive situation where someone's harming you and, and, and you are just continually in that place where you're being hurt, you're being manipulated, what we want to do as a church is come alongside you and get you out of that place of abuse. Your job as a Christian is not to just roll over and just keep taking abuse because you're supposed to roll over for folks. We want to get you out of that abusive relationship. We want to care for you. You can love somebody and forgive somebody and yet not trust them. See, Christians are always offering love and forgiveness. Trust has to be earned. And we want to get you out of that situation of abuse. This is not an excuse to just stay in an abusive relationship. This is an excuse to show love to people, to show that you stand on the grace of the gospel. The first doctrine is non-retaliation. The second doctrine is this. I call it enemy love. Enemy love. 
Now, before I even read this next passage, this is possibly the most countercultural teaching of all of Jesus' teachings. Nobody does this. This is absurd to everybody in the world but to the Christian. This should make everybody who sees the Christian scratch their head when they see Christians living this way. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said. Notice how he does it again. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, he begins again. You've heard that it was said. He's referring to Old Testament law and how the, the teachers of their day had been teaching the Old Testament law. Now, once again, it's a mischaracterization and a misrepresentation of the Old Testament law. They had, served, had heard, you shall love your, you shall love your uh, what do they say? You shall love your friend and hate your enemy. You, you, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But that's actually not what the Old Testament said. Let's read Leviticus 19, 18, where this comes from. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Ready? Did you hear anywhere in there where it says you shall hate your enemy? No. No. They added that to the Bible. Jesus is going back to what God had originally taught them in the law. Jesus is not writing a new law. He's simply fulfilling what the law always said. And he's showing them right out of the pages. You want to know what it says? It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, out of a zealousness for God, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, what they had been teaching is that if someone hates you, they hate God, so you should hate them. See, if someone's hating the people of God, well, then you should hate them as well. And that's a total mischaracterization of what the law of God actually commanded God's people to do. They were to love their enemies. They were to pray for those who persecuted them. How far they were from God's word. They were called to agape love the whole time. This word love, it's agape love. It's not a mushy love. It's not a romantic love. This doesn't mean you've got to be best friends with the person. Agape love is a love of action. It's a love of stepping in. It's a love of display. It's a love of service. It's a love of care. It's a love of not standing passively by, but actually pursuing other people. That's agape love. It's a, it's a godly love. Not only, we are, not only are we to love our enemies, but we're to pray for those who persecute us. You know, that's a very powerful phrase. It's very difficult to continue to hate someone who you're praying for. You ever tried that? You got someone in your life who you're holding bitterness towards, who you're, uh, you're just, you've been hurt by, who maybe has been manipulating you, and you start praying for them every day, you know, it only takes a few days for you to start seeing that person in an entirely new light. It's very difficult to hate someone you're praying for. And the other thing about praying for someone is there's nothing public about this. You win no accolades for praying in private for your enemies. This is just you and God. It's just you living out your Christian faith in the privacy of your home. This is not go put on display for the world to see, look, I'm praying for my enemy. No, this is between you and God. You saying, I see this person as someone made in the image of God, and I'm going to pray for my enemy. It's an act that's done in private. 
Now, why are we to do that? He says, verse 48, 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. See, when you behave this way, you're showing that you're part of the family business. See, you're, you're literally putting on display godly love for the world to see. You're behaving in some ways like God. When you love your enemies, you're saying, look at my life. I'm a representative of God, and so I behave the way God behaves, right? That's how God treated you. He loved his enemy. And he says, look, God makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the good and the evil. That's God's common grace. See, special grace is what the Christian has. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he gives you grace upon grace, where he forgives your sin he, he, he calls you a new creation. You're born again. Your, your, your debt is paid in full. That's special grace. And only Christians get that. You get that when you place your, place your faith in Jesus. But common grace is God's common grace to all humanity. Sinners and non-sinners. Well, everyone's a sinner, but sinners and those who are justified before God. Right? Common grace. The sun shines on everybody. Rain falls on everybody. It doesn't matter how bad a guy you are, how many times you've sinned, the same rain that falls on a Christian, the same rain that fell on Billy Graham, falls on the worst sinner. It's common grace to every person. Common grace from God towards the pagans, towards Satan worshipers. The sun rises on them. That's God's incredible love. It doesn't have to work that way. God could look at people who are his enemies, who are doing things that are terrible, and he could say, you know what, my sun's not going to shine on you. I'm not sending you rain. But it's this extravagant love of common grace that's common to all humanity. It's one of the unique characteristics of God. It's not just for the Christian, it's for everybody, even his enemies. And it's an extravagant love. See, this, when a Christian lives this way, they're living like God. And it takes a very strong person to do this. This is not weakness. See, the world, I think if the world got wind of what Christians are supposed to be doing loving their enemies they would say something like this. That's so weak. See, it's the strong person who conquers. It's the strong person who knows how to win a debate. It's the strong person who overcomes evil and, and really takes it and drives it home. And they'd see it as strength, the person who's standing at the end of the fight. But, but the world looks on that and says, no, that's actually weakness. It's the weak person who is insecure of who they are, who feels like they have to defend their honor at all times. So when they're persecuted or when they're judged or whatever takes place, they have to kind of like muscle up and try to overcome and show that they're not as weak as they look they are. Jesus says, look, if you know who you are in the Lord, you have all the strength you could ever need. If you have a base of knowing your identity in Christ, remember we talked about this in, this, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are meek. If you know who you are in Christ, come on world, what are you going to bring me? You're going to slap me on the right cheek? It's okay, my father's the king of kings. You're slapping a prince and you don't know it. I've got all the, all the inheritance in the entire universe is at my disposal. What are you going to do? You're going to slap me on the cheek? That's okay. I got my father in heaven who's looking out for me. We're good. You're going to sue me and take my tunic? Take my cloak. I've got an inheritance you wouldn't even believe. You'll see it one day. Right? That's the Christian perspective. It takes a deep strength to be able to respond to life this way. And and the reason is, is because you're behaving like God. Remember, it was God who first loved us. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Remember that. 
while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So many people, they think of the Christian life as we're basically good people who just needed a little bit of morality. We just needed a little more Jesus in our life to get our life together, and that made us a little bit of a better person. But the biblical worldview is far from that. The biblical worldview is that before you were in Christ, before you had faith in Jesus, you were an enemy of God. It doesn't matter how good you thought you were. It doesn't matter how many times you thought you did good deeds, how much merit you thought you earned, or how religious you were in whatever religion you were pursuing. The biblical worldview is that every person has inherited sin from Adam, our forefather, and our heart is broken. From the inside out, we're sinners towards God. We don't just do sinful things and that makes us sinners. We're sinners at a heart level, and out of that heart flows sinful, idolatrous lives. But look at how God loved us while we were enemies. He sent His Son to come for us. Jesus washed His disciples' feet. Think of that. While they were enemies, He washed their feet. He served them. He forgave them. He loved them. He taught them. He spent time with them. When they kept messing up, when they demonstrated little faith, He was there with them. He kept being with them. Remember, it was on the cross when Jesus Christ, as He's being crucified by His enemies, looks out to the crowd that was gathered to mock Him, hanging there, shedding His blood, says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing offered forgiveness even as he was dying. This passage says, be like that. Jesus showed you how to do it. He showed you how to love enemies. He loved you while you were an enemy. He went to the cross for you while you were an enemy. If, if Jesus hadn't loved his enemies, you wouldn't be where you are, Christian. It's because you were an enemy and Christ came after you, showed you incomprehensible love, agape love, stepping into your brokenness that you can even call yourself a Christian when you put your head down on your pillow tonight. That's why, because someone loved you when you were an enemy. Be like that. Love your enemies. Because that's what's been shown to you. Now pay it forward to others. And when that takes place, something will happen in this world. The rest of Romans chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, it reads this way. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Notice agape love. It's not just how you think. Go do something about it. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. When you see your enemy suffering in any way, what that says is move towards him. Do something about it. Show up at his house. Bring him in a box of cookies if you've got nothing else to do. Tell him you're thinking about it and you're praying for him and you love him. Then listen to what he does. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does that mean? By doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. It's an idiom. It, it simply means this. When a Christian, rooted on the love of Jesus Christ, is being hated upon by somebody, by the world, and that same Christian turns around and steps into that hatred with love, unconditional powerful, actual agape love, and they show up, and they love, and they keep doing that. You're heaping burning coals on that person's head who's the enemy. What's happening is their conscience begins to weigh so heavily on them because they can't win. They want you to fight back. They want you to punch, so they punch, and they want you to fight back, so they punch again. And when you act in non-retaliation and enemy love, they don't get it. And then every time they throw a punch, they're just wondering, what is wrong with me? And what does that person have? What is that strength? 
I cannot tell you how many people have been won to faith in Jesus Christ through this throughout the centuries. You don't have to read too many biographies or the people God's used throughout history to come across a number of folks who they were won to Christ by Christians loving them while they were enemies. Keep burning coals on their head. We overcome evil with good. Now, Christian, we got a lot of work to do. I started out by saying, if your eyes are open and you're watching the cultural moment we're in right now, you're watching this world and you're stepping into history and you're doing a little bit of learning of how the church has done this in the past. Man, I'm reading a book called The Color of Compromise right now. And it's how the church actually compromised. And throughout, throughout American history, the church in America oftentimes was at the forefront of leading the foot in racism. It's an ugly history that we have. You think of, if you think of the way that we have let down what it means to be like Christ and to step into brokenness with agape love and wash other people's feet. It's time for the church to reclaim that ground. What a passage for today. The world is in this place right now where we're so divided and everyone's taking sides. Have you seen that? I'm sure you have. You just have to have eyes to watch the news for a second or turn on social media for half a second to see. Everyone's got a side. It doesn't even matter what the issue is. Wear masks or not wear masks. Pick a side, right? Everyone's got a side. And then anyone who's not on your side is now the enemy, and that gives you permission for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Remember, that was the mistake that the religious leaders of the day were making. I didn't mean to pick on an intention, a very specific idea, but this is, this is the idea. Everyone is picking sides on every issue, and we're bulking up, we're studying up, and then we go to war with each other. All over. That's the culture. That's the moment. It's what we've come to, and the church is buying right into it. Let me give you two applications. One is in social media. I know not everyone uses social media, and I, but I, I, and I consider social media a very shallow form of communication and of friendship. At the same time, it's not unimportant. It's a place where actual conversational transactions take place. It's where people are actually dialoguing with each other. Over the last few years, nor especially over the last few months, social media has become a place of sides, just like what I said. Everyone's taking sides. Everyone's taking sides. And then someone posts something, and then all of a sudden people who you thought were your friends are angry at you for saying what you, th what you were trying to say. It's possible to disagree with a person and at the same time love them. Did you know that? You can disagree with a person and in such a way show them incredible Christ-like agape love. That's possible. And it's all about your tone. It's all about the words you choose to use. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's very subtle. I've seen this pop up in my own heart. Sometimes you can be harboring bitterness or a grudge towards somebody, <laughs> and you'll be scrolling through your feed, you see something that one of your friends posted that you're holding a bitterness or a grudge towards, and then the way you exert your subtle anger, an eye for an eye towards them, is you just don't like their post. I'm not going to give them the dignity of liking that post. Isn't that, isn't that disgusting? That's what we do. That's how, that's how sick and twisted we are. We think we can show them. We can show them by just not liking that post. I don't, want to give, I don't want to give them an extra like on that one. Now, if you're chuckling, it's probably because you've thought that before. And that happens all the time. I've done that. I'm guilty of this. That's how, that's how much this anger works its way into the human heart, that we find silly little ways to get back at people. And sometimes we find more overt ways. 
This happens to me. I see it happening all the time. You say something. You're trying to make a point, trying to share your heart, and then someone jumps in and attacks you. And what happens is when someone comments on what you're saying, the natural reaction is to go back and defend yourself, to go back and explain yourself more and to give more words. And all of a sudden, it's comment after comment after comment, and we're fighting with each other. What if the Christian stepped in and just said, man, even though we disagree, brother, I love you, and I'm so grateful for your perspective. <laughs> and get rid of this fighting back and forth. Wouldn't that be powerful? What if that just kept happening and Christians just kept responding with love? doesn't mean you've got to agree with everybody, but it means that your lead foot is agape love where you pray for those who you disagree with, pray for those you're harboring bitterness towards, pray for those who are angry at you. Number two, second application. I want you to take a moment right now. I want you to think of somebody who you're actually angry towards. And you know, the thing about being angry towards somebody is that usually it's because they've done something actually terrible to you. Think of someone who you're harboring bitterness towards. If you don't know who it is, think of it this way. If I told you, I want you to think of the person right now who you would have a very hard time picking up the phone to, giving a call, and just randomly say, man, I, I care for you. And I want you to know I've been praying for you and for your family. Who would be a person who you just would not want to make that phone call towards? Maybe it's because they've truly heart hurt you. Maybe it's someone who has abused you in the past. Maybe it's someone who's mistreated you, who's judged you, who's cast you out. Maybe it's someone who maybe you were friends with in the past, but man, they've just... They've been hurting you time and time again. Maybe it's your enemy. Maybe you actually have an enemy out there, someone who just has told you, I'm your enemy. I hate you. I, 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 I don't like you. Man, those words sting, don't they? This week, I want you to begin praying for them. I want you to think of that person. You don't have to take the step yet of calling them. I want you to actually, just in the quietness of your faith between you and Jesus, Pray for that person. It, I told you, it's so hard to continue holding bitterness towards someone you're praying for. It changes everything. Everything flows out of that place and that posture of prayer. I was having a conversation with yesterday, yesterday with somebody, just talking to them about how I desire for this moment to cultivate in Christians a new movement and, 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 and momentum of prayer where we're just coming together and we're, and we're looking. God just deconstructed. He, he took a moment and he deconstructed the church, right? Everything we thought we knew about what church was and how we were supposed to do church, we didn't deconstruct it. God just hit pause on the whole thing. And now we get a chance to actually build it up the right way. We get to start, right, with, with the root-based stuff. What's the base? Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Let's start there and start building the church up again on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The world will take notice. Church, can we do this? I, I want to finish by just saying, can we actually do this? Let's reclaim it. Let's be the church again. Let's not just be the church on Sundays when we come in and worship and sing songs. It's so important. We've got to do that. We have to do Sundays well. But can we be the church the rest of the week? Can we go out into Chicago, the most segregated, violent city in America, and go out there and show them what Christian agape love looks like and love our enemies? Can we step into brokenness and step into abuse and step into all these places with prayer? Come on.
come on, let's step in. And if you're wondering what it looks like, don't look for big movements. You don't need a big movement to love someone with agape love. You need a moment to say, I'm stepping into it. It's a personal transaction, me and someone else, and no one's even got to know about it. I'm not earning credit here. I'm just being like my king. I'm being like my heavenly father because he loved me. Church, that's what I'm praying for right now. We've got work to do. We've got to build this thing up on the root of the ethic of Jesus Christ. And it starts with lives that know what we believe and then actually live it out. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, in sync with each other. The world is waiting. Will you step into that place, church? I'm asking for it. I'm hoping that's where we go. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we want to do this well. We want to step into brokenness. We want to love our enemies. We don't have the first clue about how to do this, God, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. You call us to be like our Father who's perfect, God. God, we want to love people with that kind of love. Would you enable us to do that? It's superhuman. We can't do this apart from the gospel taking root in our life. And so, Jesus, make us lovers of our enemies. Make us non-retaliatory people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.